Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow, Slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national and international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week. Just a few reminders before we get into our special Anzac Day session. This is the right place to slaughter, well, to wrestle sacred cows to the ground and then pat them on the head and send them on their way. So, a few things to remember. Don't forget it's going to be May Day on the 1st of May. Not the 3rd of May, but the 1st of May. Melbourne has a tradition of having all of their events on the 3rd of May, the fir- oh, the first Sunday after May Day, but, you know, the anarchists and the radicals continue to have the 1st of May as our day. Now, it's a fascinating day, the 1st of May, because it falls on a Friday. And I encourage you to join us at 11am at a Federation Square at the corner of Swanson and Flinders Street if you're in Melbourne next Friday on the 1st of May. And at 11.30, we'll be marching, guess where, to 40 City Road, Melbourne, which is the headquarters of the Herald and Weekly Times, Murdoch's flagship in the land of Oz, the one that still makes a buck, not like the Australian, which doesn't make any money. So why? Well, tax evasion, tax avoidance is big on the agenda. The 24-carat leaners, you know, the Murdoch's of the world, Big on the public agenda, not courtesy of the Liberal National Government, but courtesy of people like you and people like uh, the Resist Murdoch's Minions Group, which will be amongst the people at the May Day uh, March on the 1st of May. So we need you there, but not just your body. We need you to bring a sign. So that's your homework in the next week. Draw something up. Doesn't matter how illegible it is. Bring a sign why you're there on the 1st of May. The 1st of May, I'll, you know, I'll speak about that next week. We'll look at it, the historical background of the 1st of May. Now, also, don't forget, on the 3rd of May, again, if you're in Melbourne, we're having the first anniversary celebrations on the 3rd of May at 12 till 3 of the uh, West Papua Independence Movement Office, Federal Republic of West Papua. Office, one of the few offices anywhere in the world, which is backed, not only backed, but actually financed by the people of Australia, people who believe that it's time that they had 
the right to independence. So I'll talk more about that next week. So these are dates to put in your diary. You can always go to the Anarchist Media Institute website, anarchistmedia.org, anarchistmedia.org. It'll all be up there for you to have a look. But as I said before, why am I going to waste an hour talking about Anzac Day, which is a few days away? Because sometimes, sometimes, as George Orwell said, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Now, I respect those people around this country and who will be going to Turkey who lost relatives and friends in World War One. I respect their right to remember. I've got no problems. What I'm concerned about are the carpetbaggers. And what what is a carpetbagger? After the American Civil War, business people from the north flooded in with uh, carpetbags full of cash, buying this and buying that. Well, I'm concerned with the Anzac carpetbaggers. Not just those that are making a buck by remembering Anzac Day and what it means, but also those in power and in government who are using Anzac Day to foster militarism and nationalism. And if you want to see what happens when militarism and nationalism are combined, just look at the history of the Second World War and the 60 million people who died during World War II as a result of militarism and nationalism. So I think it's important as radicals, as revolutionaries, I think it's important that we tell the story as it is, warts and all, because you will not hear this analysis anywhere else. It may be mentioned briefly, but you won't hear this anywhere else. And I encourage you strongly to send the podcast of this program, which is on 3cr.org.au, to as many politicians, as many community leaders, as many people in authority, and as many of your friends and your enemies as you can. Because I think it's important that one drop of rain, one drop of rain falls on the parade of the business people who are exploiting Anzac Day for what it's, what it's worth and of the politicians and the community leaders who are exploiting Anzac Day to foster, to promote their own nationalist and militarist agenda. As I said at the beginning of this program, and I'll say it again, I'll make it very clear, I respect all those people 
who had relatives and friends who died in that ludicrous war which was fought by workers at either end of a bayonet. Never again. 1st of August to the 11th of November 1918. Four years. 62,000 young Australians were sacrificed on the European killing fields and another 60,000 died of their wounds within a decade of returning home. Fighting in a dirty little trade wall fought by workers at either end of a bayonet for the glory of God, king and country. Not for democracy, not for liberty, not for the defence of this country, lest we forget. Anzac Day, 25th of April. The anniversary of the Anzac landing at Gallipoli, Turkey in 1915. Observed in Australia as a day on which past military sacrifice is remembered. Since I was a small boy, I've been fascinated by the memorials that you see in every suburb, town and village that were erected after World War I to remember those who never came back from the war to end all wars. While other children skipped around these memorials oblivious of their significance, I made an effort to read the names engraved on the monuments, not realising these memorials to sacrifice were also memorials to stupidity, ignorance, betrayal and incompetence. I believe the stories as a small boy about their brave deaths I believe the stories about sacrifice, freedom and democracy because they're the only stories I was familiar with. Tragically, since the 4th of August 2014, a hundred years after World War I was declared, we are still regaled with stories of heroism, courage and sacrificing and sacrifice surrounding a war that was fought by, as I keep saying, by workers at either end of a bayonet for the glory of God, king and country. Since the 1970s, I've been aware that celebrations, commemorations that are held every year on the 25th of April are based to a significant degree on obscene lies that have been repeated so often They are now repeated as gospel truth. No one wants to know that Australians were more divided during World War I than at any time during our history. The history of World War I is a history of betrayal, conspiracy, and mass murder committed on the altar of Mammon. Billy Hughes, 1916, Prime Minister of Australia. The IWW, Industrial Workers of the World, not only preach, but practice sabotage. Nor do they stop even here, 
But for reasons that will be obvious to every citizen of the Commonwealth in the course of the next few days, I will not now catalogue their crimes, except to remind people of the Commonwealth that they are, to a man, anti-conscriptionists. They are all anarchists and enemies of society. Australian Prime Minister Billy Hughes, the father of 62,000 young Australians who never came home, who were sacrificed in the European killing fields for the glory of God, king and country. Australians who volunteered to fight in the war to end all wars. And of the 62,000 who died of their wounds within a decade of returning home, commenting on the men and women who spearheaded the Australian anti-conscription struggle that prevented another 120,000 young Australians from being sacrificed for God, King and Country on the European killing fields. The industrial workers of the world, the wobblies. The industrial workers of the world, IWW, grew out of the bitter battles surrounding the Western Federation of Miners' attempts in 1903 to obtain the eight-hour day in Colorado, United States. Although the miners were beaten, the leader of the miners, Big Bill Haywood, successfully nurtured the birth of the IWW at a conference of industrial unionists and socialists which was held in Chicago on the 27th of June, 1905. The theoretical basis of the movement was provided by the Secretary of the Socialist Labour Party, Daniel de Leon. The industrial unionists and the socialists had concluded that political struggle by itself would never bring about radical change. They agreed the workers must organise into one big union, the industrial workers of the world. The initial alliance was an unstable one, as the industrial unionists concluded that in order to take and hold the means of production, the place to wage class war was at the point of exploitation, the place of employment while the D-Leonists still favoured political action. Three years after it was founded, the IWW split into the D-Leon faction and the Direct Action faction. The Direct Action faction made its headquarters in Chicago and through a series of dramatic strikes soon came to dominate the class struggle in the United States. The Chicago Wobblies brought the message of revolutionary unionism to the workers by setting up local industrial unions which brought together all the workers, regardless of their trade skills, who worked in the same industry. The Wobblies aimed to foment social revolution through workplace democracy. The D. Leon faction, the IWW, was established in Sydney in October 1907. From late 1908 to May 1911, the Dion faction, the De Leon faction held sway in Australia, despite reservations that were held about the organisations by many Australian militants. In May 1911, a handful of Adelaide socialists contacted the Chicago IWW requesting a charter to form an Australian branch. The Australian De, De Leon supporters were disgustingly disappointed that this tiny group of muddle-headed prejudiced and ignorant pseudo-socialists should, should join hands with the I am a bum anarchist hobo crowd. Six months later, a small group of Sydney radicals asked the Adelaide local 
for a charter to form a Sydney group in May 1912. The Sydney group had only 12 members. Within three years, the vigour and courage of the Sydney IWW turned this tiny organisation into what can now be described as the most significant revolutionary movement of strands have known, spearheading a revolutionary anti-conscription struggle that made those in authority turn pale and tremble in their seats. Tom Barker. Tom Barker, at the tender age of 26, was already an accomplished writer, speaker and organiser. He was born in the Lakes District in England in 1887. At 15, he ran away to Liverpool. At 17, he joined the Eight Hussars, an Irish cavalry regiment based in Eldershot. He was forced to leave the army after a bout of rheumatic fever and eventually made his way to New Zealand in 1909. He soon became an organiser for the Chicago wing of the IWW when it was established in New Zealand in 1912. As an organiser, he was heavily involved in the 1912-1913 strike wave that brought New Zealand to a standstill. Arrested for sedition and released on a bond, he absconded to Sydney in February 1914. He joined the Sydney branch of the IWW, writing for the organisation's monthly paper, Direct Action. By the end of the year, Tom Barker had become the secretary of the Sydney branch of the IWW and was editor of Direct Action. Under his editorial guidance, Direct Action became a flagship for the more radical elements of the Australian anti-war movement. Believing that World War I was being fought by workers either of a bayonet, Tom Barker wrote in, 19, in July 1915 what could arguably be called Australia's most influential anti-war poster. To arms, capitalists, parsons, politicians, landlords, newspaper editors and other stay-at-home patriots, your country needs you in the trenches. Workers, follow your masters. The poster caused consternation among the God, King and Country Brigade. As soon as they were put up by the RWW, they were torn down by police who surely had better things to do. Concerned about the casualties from the failed Gallipoli campaign and the beginning of public disillusionment that was increasingly being seen as a trade war between imperialist powers, the New South Wales, New, the New South Wales Parliament found Tom Barker's poster a more serious matter than Germans in our midst. Discontent over peg wages, rising prices, unemployment and war profiteering was having a direct effect on Australia's initial unequivocal support for World War I. Tom Barker, the editor of Direct Action, was arrested on the 3rd of September 1915 and charged under the New South Wales War Precautions Regulations Act with publishing a poster prejudicial to recruiting. He was held in jail for a week, bailed, and eventually fined £50 or six months' imprisonment for producing the poster. He was also ordered to enter into a bond of £200, a significant sum in 1915, to observe the regulations of the War Precautions Act during the currency of war which Great Britain is at present engaged in. Default another six months. Barker, concerned that he wouldn't be able to agitate against the war from inside prison, appeal. His consul 
counsel restated the case he made to the magistrate that Barker had been tried under state regulations in an area covered by Commonwealth law. The judge, unlike the magistrate, agreed with the consul's submission and squashed the conviction. Emboldened by increasing dissatisfaction among Australians with the consequences of World War I, a rapidly increasing membership base and their legal victory, the IWW paper Direct Action became a weekly. Direct Action was fortunate in obtaining the service of not just Tom Barker, but a talented young artist, Sid Nichols. As luck would have it, Sid made his debut for direct action as a cartoonist in the first week of the war. As a consequence of the Commonwealth Government issuing a prospectus for a £10 million war loan, with the Government asking investors to show a patriotic spirit, especially as no sacrifices entail the rate of interest being far higher than normal times. Nichols penned a cartoon with a soldier crucified on a cannon, his blood dripping into a war prophet's skull, held up by an investor who was shouting, Long live the war! Hip hip hooray! Fill him up again! This time, Barker was not able to evade the War Precautions Act through the use of a legal technicality. He was arrested, found guilty of breaching the War Precautions Act, and fined £100, refused to pay the fine, and was sentenced to 12 months hard labour. Australia wakes up. In 1915, the Labor Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, had begun agitating for conscription. The war wasn't going according to plan for the British High Command. The Dardanelles invasion had been a military disaster. The Western Front campaign was bogged down in the Flanders mud. The Universal Service League was pressing for conscription as more men were needed to die for the God, King and Country Brigade as casualties both at the Western Front and the Dardanelles were appallingly high. In response to the pressure for more soldiers, more sacrificial lambs, the Billy Hughes-led Labor government conducted a war census in 1915 that found 600% thousand fit men of military age in a population of a little over five million had tut tut not volunteered to be sacrificed on the European killing fields. Keen to bolster the ranks of the four hundred thousand young Australians who had volunteered with those who had not volunteered, the government sent each man who had not volunteered a letter which asked, Are you prepared to enlist now? Are you prepared to enlist later on? If not, why not? The Labor movement was in uproar at the idea of conscription. War profiteering had forced the Melbourne Wharfies, the Broken Hill Miners and the Illawarra Coal Miners to go on strike to keep their wages abreast with inflation. The IWW and the Australian Socialist Movement found themselves at the forefront of a movement against conscription that included the Catholic Church, led by Archbishop Mannix of Melbourne, the Labor Movement and a growing women's movement. In January 1916, Billy Hughes, on his way to an Imperial War Cabinet meeting in London, sensing that support for the war was waning among Australian workers, turned his attention to the IWW, trying to criminalise their activities in the eyes of their fellow workers. 
He denounced the Wobblies, who, posing as lovers of liberty, do what they can to prevent men from joining the expeditionary forces. He stated, It's no use treating these people like a tame cat. They must be attacked with the ferocity of a Bengal tiger. Hughes' trip to England was a disaster. The trade union's movement opposition to conscription hardened while he was overseas. Talk of a general strike was in the air. The National Trade Union Congress, which was held while he was away, only narrowly defeated the call for a national strike to end the threat of conscription. The IWW continued to carry favour among trade unionists, who began to see Australia's involvement in what was essentially a trade war as a costly mistake they wanted nothing to do with. When Prime Minister Billy Hughes, when Labor Prime Minister Billy Hughes returned to Australia at the end of July 1916, the battle at the Somme was at its height. Victory was in the balance. In response to the threat they could lose the war, the British government introduced conscription to bolster the supply of men they could send to the European killing fields. Hughes was determined to do the same. Concerned about the possibility of a general strike if conscription was introduced and the opposition of much of the Labor movement, Cabinet refused to roll over and did not support Hughes' call to introduce conscription. Faced with determined Cabinet opposition, Hughes won a narrow Cabinet vote that called for a referendum to be called on the question of conscription. In August 1916, the conscription... Referendum Act was passed by Parliament. The scene was now set for some of the most divisive moments in Australian history, the 1916 referendum. The two-month period between the time the referendum bill was passed in Parliament in August 1916 and the 28th of October 1916, the date the referendum was held, was filled with events that were designed to frighten people to vote yes. The Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, the media and the God, King and Country Brigade did their best to identify anti-conscriptionists with the more radical industrial workers of the world. On the 3rd of October 1916, 25 days before the referendum, 12 members of the IWW appeared before the Central Court in Sydney and were charged with treason, conspiracy and arson. A few days previously, three members of the Tottenham branch of the IWW, Roland and Herb Kennedy and Frank, Frank France, were arrested and committed for trial for the murder of Constable George Duncan. The PM and his supporters had a field day trying to link alleged IWW criminality with the anti-conscription struggle. The IWW 12 were committed to stand trial in Sydney on the 20th of November 1916. The trial of Frank Franz and Roland Kennedy was conducted on the 18th of October 1916, 10 days before the referendum. They were both found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. Two days later, Michael Herbert Kennedy was acquitted of the murder of Constable Duncan. The prosecutor's case revolved around the men's membership of the IWW. When Michael Herbert Kennedy was asked whether it was right to shoot czars, governors and policemen, he replied, no, as it was no use. If, what, if one shot those in office, others would be appointed in their place. The Sydney Mirror, true to form, did all it could to prejudice the trial of the IWW12 and muddy the waters before the anti-conscription referendum. The public, 
now know who are behind the anti-reinforcement campaign. They know that the IWW is dominated on the one hand by German money and German influence and on the other hand by a gang of American and other foreign criminals who will stop at nothing to achieve their wicked ends. Murder, arson, forgery, smuggling, all the crimes in the calendar. The anti-conscription movement fought back. Rallies were held around the country. In Melbourne, three days after the Women's Political Association was founded, Vita Goldstein formed the Women's Peace Peace Army. Its anti-war auxiliary, the Women's Peace Army, worked under the slogan, We War Against War. The anti-conscription movement brought women into the Australian political arena. In conjunction with Melbourne Trades Hall, the Women's Peace Army brought Melbourne to a standstill on the 4th of October 1916, when over 100,000 people marched to the Arab Bank to hear a bevy of women speak against conscription. The trade union movement women's groups, like the Victorian-based Women's Peace Army, the Roman Catholic Church under Melbourne Archbishop Mannix, and returned servicemen who had experienced the horrors and futility of World War I conducted spirited campaigns against the anti-conscription, against conscription. Despite widespread hysteria and the passage of, of a series of laws like the current anti-terrorist legislation which criminalises legitimate political activity, on the eve of the referendum, newspaper headlines warned Australians the Kaiser and the IWW want you to vote no. The Anzacs want you to vote yes. Despite the hysterical campaign conducted against the anti-conscription forces, the people of Australia voted no to conscription at the referendum held on the 28th of October 1916. And a second conscription referendum, which was held in December 1917. The aftermath... The defeat of the conscription referendum in 1916 caused a seismic shift in Australian politics. The Prime Minister Billy Hughes and the Premier of New South Wales were expelled from the Labor Party because they continued to advocate conscription. Hughes, expecting a no-confidence vote in his leadership, walked out of a caucus meeting with 23 of the 65 members present. The breakaway group formed the National Labor Party. This new party formed a temporary administration with the Conservative Nationalist Opposition. Two months later, in January 1917, the Liberals were admitted to the government. The IWW-12 went on trial for conspiracy to commit arson and sedition on the 4th of December 1916. All 12 were found guilty and were sentenced to 5 to 15 years hard labour. A Workers' Defence and Release Committee was set up to campaign to get the men out of prison. W.A. Holman, the former Labor Premier and ex-socialist who was expelled from the Labor Party for continuing to advocate conscription, won the New South Wales election held in early 1917. As a member of the newly formed Nationalist Party, the Nationalists won on the back of the fallout of the IWW conspiracy trials in Sydney. New South Wales workers, feeling the brunt of the war effort at home, went on a general strike in early August 1917, paralysing the state. 
The strike was defeated when non-union workers were brought in to do the unionist work. Billy Hughes, buoyed by Holman's election victory in New South Wales, concerned about a hostile Senate's ability to block the extension of the term for his government, used the public consternation caused by the New South Wales general strike and the jailing of the IWW as an excuse to call an early election, which his new party, the Nationalists, won handsomely. Many believe the Labor Party had blown its brains out and was a spent political force. In government, with a healthy majority, the Hughes-led Nationalist government pulled out all stops to punish the IWW. The IWW was declared illegal, its publications banned, its assets seized, and its members were sentenced to six months' hard labour for belonging to a banned organisation. Monty Miller, the grand old man of labour politics, a Eureka veteran and an IWW member who had been convicted of seditious conspiracy in 1916 in West Australia for his anti-war activities, was sentenced at the age of 86 to six months' hard labour. Both men and women were sentenced to the maximum term for membership of the IWW, which is now an illegal organisation. Billy Hughes, buoyed by his success at crushing the IWW, announced on the day of the Bolshevik Revolution, the 17th of November, 1917, that a second conscription referendum would be held in December 1917. Hughes faced open resistance from the Rhine-led Labor government. While on a whistle-stop tour in Warwick, Queensland, an egg was thrown at the Prime Minister. Senior Sergeant Kenny refused to arrest the man who had thrown the egg telling the PM, Billy Hughes, he was an officer of the Queensland Government and only only responsible to the Queensland Government. Hughes contacted the Queensland Premier, who refused to take any further action. Hughes, furious at the rebuff, returned to Federal Parliament and passed legislation that created the Commonwealth Police, the forerunners of the Federal Police. It's time, considering the Federal Police's Keystone Cop attitude to current security issues, they adopted a federal police office climbing out of a broken egg as their official emblem. Hughes promised Australians that if if the second conscription referendum failed, he would resign. The no majority was 72,476 in the first conscription referendum in 1916. The no majority had increased to 166,588 at the second referendum in 1917. Although Hughes resigned, he convinced the Governor-General to recommission him to form a government. The same ministry took office again after his his farcical resignation two days previously. The IWW release campaigns. The union swung behind the release campaign the New South Wales Labor Council, Melbourne's Trade Hall Council and the Brisbane Industrial Council called on the Parliamentary Labor Party to use every mean its power to secure the appointments of a Royal Commission to inquire into the whole conduct of the IW cases by the Crown Law Department and the Attorney-General and to report all re- irregularities in the Crown's conduct of the case. The initial appeal of the 12 before the Court of Criminal Appeal in February 1917 only resulted in the reduction of sentences of two of the IWW-12 from 15 years to 10 years. Hamilton, Teen, 
Beattie, Fagan and Grant still had to serve 15 years. Reeve, Larkin, Moore, McPherson, Besant and Glynn still had 10 years to serve and the King's sentence of five years was also upheld. The IWW was down but not out. Remnants of the organisation formed the Industrial Labor Party. Their monthly journal, Solidarity, opened a fund to support the families of the IWW12. Faced with increasing pressure from the trade union movement and the obvious perjury of many of the police witnesses that gave evidence that led to the conviction of the IWW12, the New South Wales Attorney-General called an inquiry into certain charges made against members of the New South Wales Police Force in respect of their conduct in connection with the case of King versus Reeve and others. The Labor opposition stated in the New South Wales Parliament they were not happy with the terms of reference of Mr Justice Street's inquiry, which commenced on the 19th of August 1918. The Street Commission slowly uncovered the real conspiracy behind the IWW 12 trial. Police witnesses were threatened with charges if they not commit perjury. Evidence was manufactured by the police and information was raised that the police anti-subversive unit had planted evidence and may have even lit some of the Sydney fires that led to the seditious conspiracy charges against the IWW 12. The New South Wales government sat on the inquiry's findings, refusing to intervene in the IWW-12's case. The New South Wales Labor government, looking for a way out of this morass, appointed a Supreme Court Tasmanian judge, Mr Justice Ewing, to conduct a royal commission into the IWW-12 case in late April 1920. The Ewing Commission commenced taking evidence on the 21st of June 1920. On the 6th of August 1920, Ten of the twelve were released on the recommendations of the Ewing Royal Commission. King and Reeve, the last of the IW prisoners, were quietly released in August and November 1921. The framing of the Industrial Workers of the World, 12, for purely political motives required meticulous planning that went far beyond perjury and police involvement. The evidence that was uncovered during the Street and Ewing Royal Commission suggested that both the New South Wales government and the Billy Hughes-led federal government were involved in the conspiracy to use the industrial workers of the world as scapegoats to frighten Australians into voting for conscription in 1916 and 1917. Australians, sick of the increasing Australian body count in World War I, saw through the campaign against the IWW and voted not to approve conscription in 1916 and 1917, despite government campaigns that were based on lies, intimidation and fear. The legacy of the World War I anti-conscription struggle. Around 420,000 Australians from a population of 5 million volunteered to fight in World War I. Over 62,000 died on the European killing fields, 8,000 in just one day in the Battle of the Somme. Over 100,000 came back physically and psychologically scars by the horrors they experienced. Another 60,000 died of their wounds within a decade of returning home. Their families bore the brunt of this suffering because of government policy that refused to acknowledge the high price individuals who participated in the war to end 
all wars paid. World War I was essentially a trade war fought by workers at either end of a bayonet for the glory of God, king and country. On Anzac Day, on the 100th anniversary of Anzac Day on the 25th of April, this inconvenient truth will be ignored. And the sacrifices made by Australian servicemen and women will be packaged and repackaged to suit the political agenda of current governments. The version of history presented for public consumption on Anzac Day has as much to do with reality as a Walt Disney cartoon. Not one moment will be set aside. Not one candle will be lit. Not one monument has been built to recognise the achievements of those hundreds of thousands of Australian men and women whose personal sacrifice prevent another 60,000 Australians being sacrificed on the European killing fields for mammon. Not freedom, not independence, not liberty, not the right to vote, not for the defence of Australia. Those governments, those nations that pick and choose what parts of their history they will celebrate, those nations that refuse to recognise the totality of their story are doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past over and over again. Anzac Day of all day is one day the true story, not the sanitised, commercialised, one-dimensional story that is currently being dished out to Australian is aired. The price paid by those involved in war and their family and friends is too high for only one side of the Australian story to be told on Anzac Day. Now, those of you who are involved on the action we took on the 1st of August to mark the 100th anniversary of the beginning of World War I, and those of you who are involved in the actions we took on Armistice Day on the 11th of November, just like to remind you that we have a number of actions planned, mainly for next year, but a few this year, to actually bring to attention, bring to attention to the Australian public the real story behind World War One. Not the sanitised story that we're told. Not the lies and half-truths that we're told. Because this is a significant moment in Australian history. It's a significant moment in many ways. And that's why we talk about it today. It's not just the fact that so many people died. It was really a, as I said before, a little trade war fought by imperialist powers. But it actually changed the nature of Australian society. It created a different society. The death of so many young men had a profound impact on the economic development of this country during the, during the, between the wars. It had a profound impact on family life. So many men who came home 
with so many problems. It had a profound impact on children who were born, on the family violence that occurred. It had a profound impact on the distrust in government. I mean, there are many impacts. In not... In 1924, compulsory voting was introduced in this country. And why was it introduced? Because so many people were so fed up with the antics of government that so few people were voting, the very legitimacy of parliamentary democracy was called into action. So the government, in its wisdom, introduced compulsory voting and 91 years later, we have the same issue. But the important thing is how do you prevent the past from being repackaged by governments and sections of society that use the emotion that is generated by so many deaths to push their particular issues, to create a feeling of nationalism which then can be exploited so that we continue to become involved in other people's wars as we've seen the last 20 years in this country, to create a them and us mentality as we saw during World War I, to deny the historical reality it's no exaggeration to say that if it wasn't for the actions of the men and women who were involved in the anti-conscription struggle, the Women's Peace Army, the Roman Catholic Church led by Archbishop Mannix, the industrial workers of the world, radical groups, women's groups, anti-war movements, sections of the trade union movement, it's no exaggeration to say if that first conscription referendum in October 1916 had been successful, it wouldn't have been 62,000 dead, it would have been 120,000 dead. Because what World War I highlighted was how governments and rulers were willing to sacrifice their people to extend their sphere of influence in the world. I mean, we've seen this before, but we'd never seen it on such an industrial stage. So that's my concern in 2015. This is not just dry history. If it was dry history that meant nothing, we wouldn't see $380 million being set aside by the federal government to... uh, celebrate Anzac Day or commemorate Anzac Day on the 25th of uh, April. We wouldn't see the blanket coverage, pro-war, militarist, nationalist coverage that we've seen. I mean, the men who died and who were wounded and died and their families and friends, a hundred years later, are still victims. Because a hundred years later, what have we seen? We have seen the Disneyland 
This is a vacation of Anzac Day. We've seen people hide away the inconvenient truth, hide away the dissatisfaction, talk about sacrifice for sacrifice's sake, forget about the reasons for this war, forget about how men were basically treated as cannon fodder. That's it, cannon fodder. Nothing else, sent over, you know, into the path of machine guns, just sent over the top, bang, bang, bang. So it does show that we have a history. And it's important for us to remember that these battles continue. The battles for the hearts and mind of Australians continue. And if you look at the situation between 1914 and 1918 and you look at the situation since the first Iraq invasion and today, it's quite eerie, the similarities, how the media's role has been so important in actually whipping up this mass hysteria, whipping up a mass hysteria about the need for war, a mass hysteria about how important military might is. I mean, we're not talking about self-defence. We're not talking about a social revolution. We're not talking about, you know, a fight for liberty or freedom or democracy. We're talking about wars that are fought basically for commercial interests. It's quite extraordinary. So I encourage you to think deeply on the 25th of April. As I said before, I respect all those men and women who will be using the day to remember their relatives and their friends who died. But I think it's important that we just don't look at the sacrifice but we look at the reason why these things happened. I mean, we don't glorify people who blow themselves up, you know, because, you know, we don't. I mean, sacrifice for what? What did they die for? How did this country change? That's the questions we should be asking ourselves, not sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. The impact on Australians between the walls, the impact on this young country. You can even say the huge migration movement which occurred after the Second World War was a direct consequence of so many young men being killed during the First World War. So it has a huge impact and what happened in this country, an enduring impact. And I reserve my odium for those who have used the Anzac Day centenary as a way of enriching themselves, same as the war profiteers in World War I who invested 
in the war because it was a you know they got a higher interest rate return. And there are profiteers today. And then even more importantly, and not just the profiteers, but those governments at the state and federal level who are using the Anzac commemoration to push their political and social agendas, to push for an acceptance of militarisation by the Australian public, to highlight nationalist fervour, so that next time there's another war to be fought somewhere in the universe, and there's always a war to be fought somewhere in the universe, we'll all be marching up and down and, you know, waving the flag and saying hooray, hooray, hooray. So the story of World War I is the story of a divided nation. It's a divided nation. It's a story about struggle. And most importantly of all, spare one moment. Shed one tear for those men and women who fought tooth and nail to ensure that the conscription referendums in October 1916 and December 1917 were defeated. Without them, it's quite possible another 60,000 young Australian men and even more would have been sacrificed on the European killing fields for the glory of God, King and Country in a dirty little trade war fought by workers at either end of a bayonet. You've been listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Next week, we'll go back to the usual grind, you know, the usual grind. Tax evasion, tax avoidance, poverty, you name it. We'll, we'll look at it. May Day, activities. It's wonderful. That's next week. Listen in next week on your local community radio station. You can access this little pamphlet by going to anarchistmedia.org. There's some wonderful posters we've designed. Uh, download them, put it on your wall if you're too frightened to take them out in the public street. I can understand why on, on Anzac Day. And uh, if you want to email us, anarchistage at yahoo.com. Pleasant messages. 0439 Don't forget, join PIBSIC, public interest before corporate interest. Join today. Join now. Because if you don't want this garbage, you want the real story. We need political parties. We need community groups that are willing to actually open their mouths, tell the truth, because as George George Well said, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. And don't forget, the program is podcast, freecr.org.au. Send the podcast to your local politician, your local, your friends, your local RSL. I don't care. Send it everywhere. Let people understand there is another story to be told about Anzac Day and World War One. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death's construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 
10am every Wednesday. Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh!